I'm committing the Gates Foundation to provide an additional $315 million over the next three years to developing the innovative technologies needed to stop climate change. This is part of the Bezos Earth Fund's $10 billion commitment to fight climate change, enhance nature, and advance environmental justice and economic opportunity. They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my aim. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the third season of Untelevised, the podcast. Um, if this is your first time listening to us, um, Untelevised is a platform dedicated to exploring possibilities for social change, particularly sort of quite radical social change and looking often at the very undocumented, grassroots types of movements that are working towards um, social change in the world. We are this season collaborating with the Lush Spring Prize to focus specifically on climate justice, but at all the many, many other themes that kind of come up and interweave with climate justice when we talk about it. And so you will hear much more about that as we go along. My name is Mona. Um, I am here with my co-host, Fizeo. Hi, everyone. Yes, as Mona says. I'm <laughs> See, she exists. There's proof. I'm not just making it up. Um, so for this episode, we are exploring philanthropy, um, charity, philanthropy, the role of these things, and we will define them for you shortly, as we always do, in the kind of wider climate justice um, movement. Um, we spoke last week about capitalism, um, which is the wider economic and political system that we all live in and are all bound by and are fighting within um, as we try and fight for climate justice. And so while we are in this capitalist system, one of the main things that determines all of our lives is money. And so when we want to fight for any sort of social cause, we are unfortunately very, very bound by money. And so how do we, um, when we are fighting for social causes, get money? How do we distribute money? Who do we get it from? Who do we give it to? How do we spend it? Um, and how do we do all of that as ethically as possible when arguably the existence of money is a pretty unethical thing in the first place? So that's what we're doing today. <laughs> um, not easy, easy listening easy, as easy usual. Easy listening as usual. Yeah, sorry. If you were just hoping to kind of doze off a bit, I don't know, you might want to clock out here. Um, but let's see. <laughs> we hope you stay with us. So um, in true untelevised style, um, we like to define the concepts that we discuss. We don't want to make any assumptions about people's kind of base level of understanding or exposure. That's the whole point of this podcast. So we've said a lot of words to you already and um, we're going to have a go at defining them for you. So the third sector, fourth sector, voluntary sector, charity sector, philanthropic sector um, 
it's the space that we both exist in <laughs> but just there in the amount of different terms I've used you can tell that it's a space that is slightly complicated or more complicated than it may seem um, but it's a growing space it's actually the fastest growing space um, so whilst it's still substantially smaller than the public sector or the private sector, the voluntary sector and the voluntary workforce has grown by 20% since 2010. So in the last decade and a little bit, it's grown by 20%, which, like I said, makes it the fastest growing sector of any of the sectors that we have. Um in our introduction there, Mona used the words charity and philanthropy interchangeably, and I've just introduced a load more words, third sector, fourth sector, um, public sector, private sector. Um, but essentially, they're all different institutions that work in different ways to provide services to citizens, right, Mona? Yeah, so the public sector, I guess, maybe the most traditionally, um, is what is run by our governments. Um, so very typical examples, at least where we're recording here in the UK, is state schools. You know, the fact that every kid in the UK can go to a free school and that's paid for by tax money. Um, or the NHS, the National Health Service, again, um, to lesser or greater extent, free at point of entry, paid for by tax money. So that's managed by our governments and we call that the public sector. Mm -hmm. The private sector, which we've referenced briefly, is is um, essentially um, is actually just business you know it's corporations is where profit is made and people run whatever they want to run to make their money it doesn't have to have any kind of social um, focus obviously at all yeah so like last year we spoke to last week would be considered a public sector organization yes and if they decide to do something nice with that money then that's lovely but that's not the kind of core purpose of why they exist and we will get onto that as well in a bit because hence you know <laughs> philanthropy and stuff <laughs> but um the charity sector or the third sector, and the reason it is called the third is literally because you have public, private, and then this is the third one, which also should, should tell you that it once upon a time was maybe seen as a bit more of a sideline sector if it was just called mm. the third one. And now it's kind of really growing, as Fazio said. So the charity sector is where work that is considered of social good is done, but not by our government. So it's done by organizations, people, individuals, volunteers, etc., who kind of raise the money for it through other means. And usually it is done to fill in the gaps that are not covered by our public sector. So, you know, that might be distributing kind of food to the homeless mm. or putting up kind of temporary shelters, maybe putting on some great art activities for kids that come from deprived backgrounds. It's something that is really lovely and great to have, but the state isn't sort of doesn't consider itself obligated to provide it for us um now even within the charity sector third sector you get a real range of organizations you can get charities that are massive that make millions and millions of pounds that have big offices air conditioning printers photocopiers yeah. <laughs> hr departments pension schemes etc and have loads and loads of staff i love that air conditioning is our, our barometer <laughs> of luxury absolutely <laughs> i mean to be fair i'm actually quite glad we don't have that i find it really really uncomfortable but there you go 
Um, or like us, you're sitting in a very unair conditioned room, but um, you have the sort of much, much smaller part of the charity sector, which is actually probably what you might hear us refer to quite often as the grassroots sector, you know, as projects that are set up by people with very little money, very little resource, not linked to lots of big sponsors and funders and so on. So that's like, there's a massive scope within the charity sector. Now, the charity sector often operates on getting their money from what we call charitable foundations. So organizations that literally exist to have money and to distribute that mm. money. And that's, we're going to be hearing from a charitable foundation today and we'll get a bit more of a definition from them as to what that is. Often the money tends to come from like a rich individual who wants to do something, I guess, good with that money, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's where, where the word philanthropy also comes in so philanthropy describes the acts of essentially yeah maybe a wealthy um, person that just wants to give their money out so you know even someone like Bill Gates could you know would be considered potentially philanthropic even if the rest of the time he's you know running commercial businesses basically or when Lush decides to kind of give money to causes that could be seen as kind of philanthropic efforts because they take their profits and they spend it the way they'd like to spend it for social good. But they can do that in whatever way they want to. They are not obligated the way that our governments maybe are with our tax money to spend it on certain specific things. And therefore, you obviously will get more funding given to whatever parts of society are more popular or mm. more interesting to the donor. Yeah, um, and often that can actually be a critique of philanthropy, right? That it gives control to these either rich individuals or corporations to d dictate where money goes. And I mean, when it's on a smaller scale, maybe that might not matter. But when it's on a large scale, like someone that has billions in um, expendable money, that could actually, that could amount to more than a country, right? In terms of <laughs> where they can dictate where that cash flow goes. Um, but I think it was you actually that made a good point to me once, which is, does that necessarily mean that they're any less qualified or going to work any less in the interest than our government works for us? Um, are they any less valid people to decide where money goes, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, where you might hear some debates sometimes is around with mass corporations, if they do decide to give their money to, you know, quote unquote, to charity, but then maybe they don't pay their taxes, mm -hmm. then yes, something socially good still happens, but whatever socially good they decide. And then again, depending on how much you trust your government, you might say, well, if, if you guys just paid all your taxes or even higher taxes, and that went to the government and they distributed it to the poorest areas or into the schools or whatever, arguably, if we had good governments, trustworthy governments, that might be better. So there, it's a really, really complex space. Now, just to throw one more curveball in there, we talk, talked about the private sector being separate to the charity sector, but there is a sort of newer term that has come out maybe in the last couple of decades, which is called social enterprise. And one of our guests today runs a social enterprise. Now that, as the word might sort of suggest, is an enterprise, it's a business, they make profit, but they do something social. Now, that's not a legal structure. Um, you can be all sorts of different legal um, constitutions and still be a social enterprise. 
but essentially it means that a business decides that as well as being a business and have, making profit, we would like to constantly be doing something of social good with it. So an example might be somebody runs a bakery, but they say, I will mainly train up ex-offenders who need work to become bakers and they will be the people working in my bakery. So I'm doing something really good, but essentially I'm still running a bakery and I still need my bakery to make a profit. So that's a social enterprise. And that is a sort of response by some people to the idea that they don't want to be dependent on funding from external sources. They don't want to feel like they are sort of, you know, needy or that they don't have their own agency or their own say. Um, but it's kind of a very blurry space where business starts to infiltrate the kind of social um, services that we have. And, you know, again, we will let you decide after this episode whether that is a good or a bad thing. So um, for the purposes of today's episode, we are hearing from someone who runs a social enterprise um, who actively thinks about how they might, you know, make money in a more independent way and distribute it to a cause they care about. And then we also are hearing from a charitable foundation who therefore are acting in a philanthropic way and about what it means to be in a position of giving money and almost that position of power um, or influence and how we might shift that power dynamic between funders and recipients. So first up this week, I'm speaking to Anne Rami. Now Anne leads the communications and community area at Be The Earth Foundation, which is a philanthropic organisation that funds causes that focus on planetary regeneration. They were also the co-awarders of the Ancient and Indigenous Award at this year's Lush Spring Prize. That's a new award that recognises and celebrates the roles that ancient wisdom and knowledge plays in the fight for climate justice. And it acknowledges the oppressive colonial and patriarchal structures that have stripped these practices from our common consciousness she describes herself as an eco-feminist and has a background in mobilisation, campaigning and cultural hacking. She's dedicated to creating resilient change based on collaboration, trust and affection. So I was excited to explore what this looks like with her and understand how philanthropy might take a radical new approach. I know that charity carries a lot of meaning. And that sometimes that's not the meaning that we uh, would expect because it sounds really conservative in terms of um, something that is connected to colonialism. Because if you, if you think of the origins of the charity business is something that people that hold a lot are kind of distributing money from uh, the goodness of their hearts to people that have less opportunities. And this is not something that uh, foundations that are more aligned to systemic change and this necessary views of the future are working now, uh, much more connected to the principles of distribution of funds. So how is it that we distribute wealth um, towards the system? And, and funders typically choose uh, things to work around. So you will see foundations that will work with human causes, uh, like in human rights 
rights causes, people that would invest in art, people would, that would invest in whatever technology. Uh, and uh, at BDRF, we are a very um, un underrepresented group of funders, which are the funders for regeneration and for food systems and indigenous communities. So um, we know for a fact that today, less than 1% of the world's charitable funds move towards uh, indigenous peoples and and in this perspective of distribution of funds. So lots of the money is going, going into museums and, and ballets and operas and stuff like that. Not that they're not important, but for the future, uh, yeah, this is something that we should keep in mind. Foundations should be really concerned on adjusting the way they uh, disperse their funds. We've had the privilege of hosting this year's Spring Prize, um, and I had the personal privilege of announcing the new Ancient and Indigenous Wisdom Award, which Be The Earth is co-awarding um, this year. So how did Be The Earth get involved with the Spring Prize? What attracted you to it? I know you spoke just then about regeneration and Spring Prize is a celebration of regenerative approaches to climate change um, or climate justice. Um, and then, yeah, why this award specifically? Again, you've spoken a little bit to that in your previous answer, but why did you want to recognize ancient and indigenous wisdom in this realm? I guess the answer to that came with one of the applicants. So I, uh, I was one of the judges of this specific category and the application process asked for all the applicants to answer a bunch of questions. And one of them was, what does regeneration mean to you? And this one answer said, regeneration is just a word that white people invented to describe the things that we indigenous have been doing forever. And that coming up with this category was to honor this belief that we know that indigenous voices, women voices, and underrepresented groups uh, need to be recognized. And not only because we are looking for reparation, but because we know that they are really, they hold really the way forward, the answers, and they are better, best equipped to deal with the challenges that we are seeing now. Yeah, I, I want to explore some of the things you've spoken about there in some more detail a little later. But first, I, I want to touch a little bit around language because um, already in our conversation, we've seen sort of the important that, importance that's being placed on language, how we frame things, what words we use. And that was also a big part of the awards. Um, for example, not calling people winners, rather calling them award recipients or awardees. Um, you spoke earlier about framing things as distribution of funds um, and stuff like that. So there's obviously a very conscious decision in the way things are framed and the way the language that we're using. Um, so I wanted to actually ask, how did you sort of discover um, as a foundation or even personally, the importance of what language is used? Um, was it based on feedback or was it sort of a decision that was made internally? Because I sometimes wonder, um, as a person that operates sort of in a dual space, both at the grassroots, but also within a lot of theoretical spaces, I often wonder whether we 
over theorize some things versus what people on the ground actually find important so it's very interesting for me to explore yeah where this sort of focus on language comes from and its importance mm. I really like what you're saying because every the earth we, we, we regularly discover that we are working in this place that we call the liminal space which is the place that combines everything that is practical with everything that is so complex that we cannot put our hands around it in this gray area where we question ourselves. Are we walking the path of our speeches? Are we actually doing what we say we do? Um, BD Earth is an organization that is also from diverse backgrounds. So even though it's a UK-based organization, it has lots of network and relationships in South Africa and also in Brazil. And that means that we have, as a team, uh, different meaning for things. We, we see the world in different ways and we use words that uh, are, are, have different meanings. We express ourselves in, in different ways. Um, I'm here speaking with you in English, but I am originally Brazilian and I, my, my mother language is Portuguese. And there are lots of things that I, can, I, I can't even express in this second language that I am using now. And from that, from there comes our willingness to keep collective understanding of things simple because we have collective, under, collective understanding of many things, not to invent too many more words, but at the same time to respect, to listen, to understand that people have different opinions and people have different approaches and different meanings for different things. So the discussion around language is alive. Things are gonna change. We are now speaking regeneration. Maybe in five years, we're gonna speak another language. I'm from a generation that has seen the transition in between sustainability to regeneration. In, uh, 10 years ago, people would only speak about sustainability. And that's a word that is fallen out of uh, speech right now. So, um, I think that the important thing is that us as uh, transitioners, as activists, as grassroots, as frontline defenders, and as funders, and as people that are in the organizations and, and other spaces, and all spaces are important, but we, are, we keep ourselves open into listening and into learning uh, from different points of views and different backgrounds. I wonder if, the issue um, is less terminology that we use and rather the sort of existence of competition in general when we're looking at organisations that are working for social change. I think a lot of language discussion is trying to dispel power dynamics and trying to, I guess, create a more equal playing field in some senses. But I wonder if power dynamics can ever be removed in a society where money tends to dictate power. <laughs> um, so yeah, I wanted to just speak about sort of the whole notion of power dynamics within giving and, and how you navigate that. Um, mm. And also within that, one of the things that we've been thinking about, which I think is quite interesting, is a notion of success in these things when you have competition, um, which I know the Spring Prize was trying to move away from the notion of competition, but when essentially some people do get and some people don't, what that means for organizations because it's success actually the fact that the the cause that you're fighting for is being funded um 
regardless. So if you're fighting for a cause and that's getting funded, should we be happy because that cause is getting funded? Or is it about the individual sort of ego of, oh, it's my organization that gets to do this? So I think there's basically, I've said a lot there, <laughs> but yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to post to you the whole notion of sort of how we rank social causes, how we, how we navigate this environment of obviously having finite resources, but wanting to do infinite good, if that makes any sense. And, and how as a foundation you navigate that? In my work, the, the way I behave uh, as an individual, but also what I see in the organization that I am part of is a willingness to recognize that yes, we live in an unbalanced situation. That's not good. And we, are, we have human capacity to deal with this problem one at a time. So it's not like we can't do everything, more like we can't do everything at the same time. And we need to be a little bit more smart to prioritize, smart to make decisions that are connected to the priorities. And for instance, for BDF, uh, one of the priorities is to keep the diversity of the system, uh, the nurturing of the system flowing. So it would sound on a first impression that is very unfair that we fund anyone in the north of the globe. But from a strategic approach, sometimes it's very necessary to fund stuff that's happening in the UK because we know the power of influence in governments and governments that make decisions for the entire world. Uh, if we move away from the perception of that things that are 100% right and 100% wrong and we have absolute uh, truths, this is how we try to work. We try to work on a diverse approach, uh, making choices based, based on priorities, one by one, with the knowledge that we are humans, doing stuff at human scale, and also not in control of everything that happens. People are very wrong when they think that they can change the world or save the world. This is not how nature works. We individuals are not the ones that are gonna decide uh, the general fate of humankind. But we, do, we can make decisions that are small and that are place-based and that are uh, connected to our communities and that are really clever and these decisions unlock change and these decisions reach further. The idea of uh, keeping a mindset that allows collaboration, creativity, multiple stakeholders being engaged, uh, multiple solutions being funded, uh, and evidently looking to the people and places and organizations and groups that are unseen, underfunded, and that capitalism fails to support. That seems like a good idea. That seems like a, a, a good priority. So we, we choose to go on that way. It's imperfect. Uh, humans are imperfect. Nothing is amazingly perfect. And the approach is that we learn from our mistakes. We are together to celebrate and also to understand where is it that we are going wrong and how is it that we improve for next round. One of the key things you said was collaboration. And I think that is a unique way of looking at the relationship between a funder and someone that they're funding mm -hmm. is the notion that 
the relationship can go two ways and there's learning on both parts from my personal experience it's not an approach that all funders take so I think mm-hmm. even having that intention um goes some way towards changing guess, things work I think it's a growing awareness that uh, when you start questioning power and the power that comes with money you open yourself to other types of resources that are equally important. So money is important evidently in a capitalist society, but it's not the only thing. Money does not do anything alone. So there are other types of resources that are so relevant, so important, and that need to to be looked at as equivalent. So how uh, valuable it is to know how to grow your own your own food in connection with nature um, uh, teaching your own children the, the children from your uh, community to do that too to build this resilience how valuable is that would we the people that hold the decision making about money know how to do that we would would we know so also comes from a perspective that's, that we are trying also to invite people with money and organizations with money to step out of this place of uh, us and them and to join in collaboration, to be there with whatever it is that you have. Some people have money, some people have the knowledge, some people have uh, the, the abilities for connection. Some people are really great storytellers and they're gonna tell us about everything that happened. And everyone is important. We need everyone. We are in a, in a situation right now uh, that we know we have no more time. So the idea of working on a competitive mindset, on a, a get, you against me mindset is not useful anymore. It doesn't work anymore. We need to learn collaboration and we need to learn fast. And we were not taught about that. So. This is us learning while doing it. And I don't think it's uh, uh, very common in foundations, but I think it's a growing movement as well. And it comes from the discussion around decentralizing power and questioning power and understanding what else is important beyond uh, financial. And you've given me faith in my question writing abilities because literally the next thing I wanted to ask you about before you spoke (laughs) was about systemic change, the system, capitalism. And I wanted to move on to thinking about that because we've just had an episode on capitalism and whether we can have change within the system or whether we have to sort of move beyond the system in order to have sustainable change and specifically within the fight for climate justice. And one of the things that really interested me about Be The Earth Foundation was the sort of framing of creating opportunities for systemic change. Um, so I wanted to explore that notion, yeah, that we can sort of fund ourselves towards systemic change, because it's almost like, like you said, using capitalist principles and ideologies and to sort of try and beat capitalism and its effects and its um, impacts. And within that, I'm going to bunch another <laughs> question and concept, which is also the scale of the change, because, for example, we know that this award was, um, I think, £10,000 that was shared between the organisations that won it. But we've got billions of pounds on the other side being invested to maintaining the status quo. So how do we sort of also balance that? I, I didn't want to get too philosophical and, and neither to 
sound desperate, but yes, yes, it is not ideal. Yes, there's more, more money doing harm than money doing good. Um, but this comes with an intention. I mean, systemic change for me, and this is very personal, it is about a posture, a way to, to see things and live life. And that comes from the strong belief that life is made for thriving. Systems are made for healing themselves. Um, life finds a way. So we humans are part of the system. We are not disconnected from it. We are not outside of it. We are not planning and thinking about, we are just there, a part of it, inseparable. And our disembodied minds are creating these scenarios and are creating these fears, are, are creating this um, need to strategize and plan and control everything and move away from action. It is true that very little money goes into regenerative communities, but that's the true right now. And we can, we can uh, continue uh, creating this new reality where more money goes into regenerative communities. We need to start somewhere and we need to focus on what is going right. So it's not about what is wrong, but what about what is strong? Uh, if I go to bed daily thinking how much money has been invested in uh, oil today and how much money did the indigenous communities in Amazon receive, uh, that would bring me into, uh, honestly, depression. It is wrong, it is sad. Uh, I mean, I'm focusing on what is doing right, you know? Uh, and so I guess Big Yard speaks to that a little bit, looking for, an, on a systemic approach, uh, as the system is projected to heal itself, our main goal would be to look into exactly those hotspots, those key stakeholders, the, those tiny points of change where you, you just go there and boom, unlock. You unlock that, you unlock change. It's not like you're creating change. You don't, you don't manipul manipulate people into changing, that doesn't happen. You find specific spots where change is uh, already happening and you unlock something that is blocking that. And most of the times, I mean, this is very empirical on my side, but many of the times when you work uh, with unlocking change, you need less resources because everything is prepared by the system to happen. And when you, you work with creating change, you start from scratch and then you have, you, you need people with uh, uh, huge salaries, creating theories that go into papers and that get published. And then you have to make a very expensive website and then a brand and then you need more people in your team and then you're uh, two years later then not one pound went <laughs> to no one because you're still planning um that's a choice i mean it's valid i'm not saying it's wrong it's valid but at, at, from a systemic uh, approach at bdr3 chose to look into this other realm which is how is it that we work with diversity? How is it that we combine people, programs and places uh, into synergistic relationships? Because every much, much comes from relationships. 
we, we tend to undermine the value of people in connection, people in connection with themselves, people in connection with nature, people in connection with each other are powerful. And that means, I mean, this is, this is scratches the surface of what I, I think or of what I am experiencing. I don't think that, I see that. I'm, I'm seeing happening from a systemic change approach. Will we make it? I'm not sure, I don't know. Will we, we win this struggle against climate collapse? I have no idea. And I, I do not intend to have these answers. What we, what we should be really focusing on doing is showing up as humans to these experiences and doing our best and doing the, the best of our capacities with the resources that we have. And I loved what you said there about the unlocking versus the creating change. Um, and I think that really speaks to a lot of the work that we see and we try and profile, um, which is the work at the grassroots. Because at the grassroots, people are used to working with, like you say, minimal resources. They're just acting because they can and they and they think they should, and there's a need. Um, so actually, like you say, that change is already happening. So it's more about giving the resource to allow that change to be amplified rather than, like you say, sometimes I feel bewildered when I look at the amount of money that goes into just theorizing about change, like you said. So the amount of money that goes into investigating questions that we all really know the answer to because they've been investigated a year before that and a year before that and a year before that. Um, and then whatever comes out of these investigations. So, so that was really um, energizing to hear. Just a couple more questions. Um, I wanted to speak about sustainability within funding. So the other guests that we've had on on this episode spoke about moving beyond a time where they needed to rely on funders and actually they became self-sufficient. And I wanted to know from sort of a foundation's point of view, whether that's also an aim you have for the organizations that you fund or, or whether reliance on funding is something that you think is okay. And actually something that's really interesting for me is the notion that perhaps it's preferable to actually rely on funding rather than become quote unquote sustainable because then that relies on becoming profitable and I don't know whether I, I understand how much resource then goes into trying to be a profitable organization that can sustain itself um, and whether that then distracts the organization from focusing on the social cause because they're focusing on selling bags and bracelets to make money to then focus on the social cause if that makes any sense so yeah I, I wonder what sort of as a foundation your your standpoint is on that. Yeah, we like the idea of resilience rather than sustainability. Uh, I'll try to bring a metaphor. Let's say you have a garden and you did a monoculture there and you, you are doing well. You got lots of tomatoes and you sell your tomatoes and you're doing well. But then one day uh, this bug comes and eat all, eats all your tomatoes and you don't have your garden anymore, you lost your income and you're in trouble. Um, that's a little bit what happens when we look into uh, traditional philanthropy. philanthropy. Philanthropy's mission is to is extinguish itself. So that's another paradox, okay? We don't, we, we don't want to collaborate with a group of funders that are only replicating the problems that, are, that they are trying to solve. So we are more aligned with a group of funders that are questioning philanthropy and working towards a future where philanthropy is not needed. 
for that to happen, we need to further resilience. So we need to diversify these tomatoes. Yes, so people cannot plant only tomatoes. We, I cannot have a garden exclusively of tomatoes. And nature has taught us that. We don't need no brains to think of that. We, 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 it's just observing nature. It's like, it's diverse. At the same time that you plant this, there's that growing, this thing growing there. And, and this other bug doesn't need that plant. And that plant ha helps the system of the other plant. This is the sort of mimicry that we are trying to create as funders. Uh, meaning that evidently for a while, uh, organizations, groups, grassroots movements, they will need uh, to rely exclusively on funding. And some of them will rely on funding for a long time and maybe forever. But we cannot assume that, that this is the reality for everyone. So uh, you asked me if this is something that we worry about or if we, we want to create as funders to build resilience, sure, yes. And this is not about only means of financial funding, uh, but, but keeping ourselves locked in a charitable uh, perspective as it was uh, 50, 100 years ago, that doesn't help the future. And this is where we want to work upon, you know? Um, so yeah, building resilience goes beyond uh, quote-unquote supporting people to become profitable because the new ideas of resilience, the new ideas, of, the, the ideas that we need for the future in terms of what development means, they need to be changed. So a, a, a sustainable or a resilient business maybe is just is not it's totally not profitable it's just a business or an organization or a movement that has more than tomatoes to rely upon in case the tomatoes collapse we are specifically talking about creating adaptation because the future is dire and it, it will need us to be really flexible really diverse really adaptable and this needs to speak to the funding world as well. We cannot uh, move forward with practices that are outdated and having only financial resources as resources and only funders as the source of resources and stuff like that. We need to be more creative and more strategic than that. Yeah, again, it, it sort of speaks to existing in that dual space where you're trying to create change within the system whilst also fighting the system and more than fighting the system, fighting the ideology that we've all become accustomed to where we rely on the same sort of principles. Um, so like you say, yes, being resilient or sustainable doesn't necessarily have to correlate with the ideas of profit and things like that. But to wrap up, Anne, um, so if there are people who are listening and agreeing with what you're saying, feeling energized by what you're saying, but feeling maybe a little bit detached because they're not identifying themselves as, as a foundation or someone who has um, custodianship over a large pot of money so they can't themselves set up a foundation. Um, we've spoken a lot today about the things that we can do outside of finances to create this resilience, to support organisations, etc. So if people wanted to do something, they wanted to start, what would you say is one action or one of the things that they can do that would have the biggest impact in 
in terms of supporting sort of your work moving forward? Get to know where your food is produced. Choose to uh, buy your food from local producers, um, focusing on creating resilience for your own community. Your food, your water, and where you live, the, the, the three principles of permaculture. Uh, these are, I guess, uh, the best practices for individuals at this moment uh, to be really thorough upon. And I know it's a hard thing. It's a very hard thing because the system is entire programmed for us to be um, consumers of big corporations that are destroying planet Earth. Um, but the experience of reconnection with food and with our own food and where our food comes from and with soil and with the land is life transforming. And it teaches us about how systemic and how interconnected life is. And I guess, yeah, I would start there. I am in my own process. Uh, sometimes when I hear podcasts like that and I hear someone speaking, it, it feels like that person knows a lot and her life is perfect. And it's not like that. Nothing's perfect. So we have our own challenges. But uh, lesson 101 is like to start where we are. Uh, we do what we can with whatever we have. So whatever you can do, whatever. If it's, you can change one thing, just do it. <laughs> and sometimes considered the hardest question. And when will your work no longer be needed if you can ever see a time? Mm. Oh, that's such a lovely question. I love the future, you know, even though I know the future is dire, I, I am passionate about the future. I would have to say that I hope that my work was not needed today. <laughs> it's not like uh, I'm not doing something that I hope uh, that I wish it was needed, you know. Uh, trying to make humankind a viable species for planet Earth. That's my my role. But I do think that in my grandchild's generation, whatever I am doing right now is not going to exist anymore. We will be we will be in another scenario. We will be we will we, we will have gone through lots of challenges, but we would have learned a lot as well. So um, yeah, these people will be reconstructing uh, the structures that fell and hopefully these blurbs of resilience that we are uh, nowadays involved with will be spreading all around and creating more life and more um, regeneration for the future. So yeah, I'm, I'm an optimist. <laughs> So this week, I spoke with Iskander Murugeta Ayele, um, who is the founder of Food Secured Schools Africa, who were the winner of one of the Young Projects Awards in the Lush Spring Prize. Iskander has a background in agronomy and has essentially worked as a humanitarian worker supporting food production by refugees and smallholder farmers in South Sudan, Uganda, and the Democratic of Congo. He returned to Ethiopia, where he's from, in 2018, where he set up Food Secured Schools Africa, which is, as we described earlier, a social enterprise that aims to produce food whilst also distributing food 
to hundreds of disadvantaged families in Ethiopia. We spoke about social enterprise as an alternative to the more traditional charities and philanthropic models that you've heard us describe today. It's very, very clear, very crystal clear for the world that I think Africa has a great potential and Africa is the future uh, and I believe in it. So food security is also a, a big issue in my country. So I feel it very, very critical. And I implemented uh, this uh, Food Security Schools Africa initiative because uh, it is very critical and important uh, for Ethiopia to have such initiative in the school because we have now uh, in the entire country, we have 1.3 million students are in school feeding program. And it is financed, uh, the school feeding program is financed mainly by uh, by international donors, international communities, and uh, prominent people, you know, musicians and artists. And I don't believe in, in such kind of donations. So uh, I started a garden uh, which can actually support the school feeding program. For me, uh, we are not uh, NGO to, to seek funders uh, running after donors. Uh, to spend, but uh, a social enterprise. That means I offer my expertise as an agronomist, uh, offer training and support. The parents learn to grow, how to grow food, which uh, they can sell. If the international donors will completely disappear tomorrow, uh, there is a sort of local food system. Uh, that's my, my belief. So uh, our policy is not designed to keep the donors at bay. We know donations are very important for startup, uh, but we are not uh, creating uh, bureaucratic organizations uh, depending on, uh, uh, on, on, uh, on foreign aid. I think that is a very, very important uh, issue that entrepreneurship is the bottom line. For me, uh, a social entrepreneur like myself can actually bring a change. Uh, I know it could be, um, uh, the progress could be slow, but uh, uh, through time, it could bring a real change in the community because we know the root cause uh, and, and we have uh, uh, relative, very relative, relative solutions to that kind of uh, uh, root cause uh, for that matter. I want to focus on what you've said just now, like, you know, social entrepreneurship, not relying on um, grant donations and so on. So in the capitalist system that we live in, um, which is, you know, profit driven. And when people hear entrepreneurship, um, we probably do think, okay, business, making money, needing to operate as a viable business means that you do have to always be focusing on what's going to make you money. And so if that then becomes one of the things you need to be doing to survive, um, how do you do that well? without kind of compromising the values and the ethics of your organization. I know that's always a question that is asked around social entrepreneurship. Like, is it, does the social overtake, does the entrepreneurship overtake? But essentially you have a social mission, um, but you still need to be keeping an eye on how to finance it. So how do you balance the two? It's all about return on investment. Uh, and of course, private sector needs sizable returns, and as a social enterprise, also 
we really need uh, sizable, which is uh, returns to sustain uh, our enterprise. But for me now, our stage matters a lot. We are still a startup. Uh, our current struggle is not a balance uh, uh, profit versus social mission, but uh, to ensure there is actually revenue that can cover the costs. We, we work with uh, uh, international donors uh, uh, and uh, impact investors for that matter who who truly uh, uh, see the impact and if we miss up uh, they uh, pull out uh, so that's that's the most uh, essential thing for me uh, that's very very important we should we should look into the returns uh, but of course we are now in the startup stage that's why we really need a bit of support to to get that that point and I guess that does bring us on to the fact that, you know, despite your reservations about um, grants and donations, you nonetheless um, have been part of the Spring Prize and you've, you know, you've received an award. And I guess um, we all have to always balance the, the short term and the long term and the macro and the micro ways of, of working and perhaps what you do to survive in the short term until you hopefully like change the structures um, that you're working within. So when you do seek these grants at the moment in this period um like how do you maybe decide um do you have a criteria by which you decide who you would take money from and who you wouldn't um what are the pros and cons like are there pros to getting charitable maybe donations as opposed to working purely independently or on an entrepreneurship model like you know what is it about the charitable donations that I guess is a system that you would like to challenge um, whilst needing to participate in it, like in the short term? For me, uh, it's very important. The profile of the donor is very important. For example, I would not uh, take grants from companies who destroy or poison the land. Uh, we do not do green washings. And uh, the other thing is that I want to uh, target is um, those uh, donors who are actually working with with, uh, with the entrepreneurs. That is a very important thing. So we avoid large program that requires much paperwork. I uh, rather dig the land than complete an Excel budget. So uh, uh, many the main criteria uh, is to treat it as an entrepreneur and to be judged by the quality of my service and the results in the field and i don't want to do uh, to be monitored by uh, my ability to make purpose so that that is the most uh, important thing just to give some global context actually we're speaking from the uk to ethiopia um and about a lot of the issues that you know africa faces in in, in a global context um and I um, I work with a lot of Ethiopian, also Eritrean, Sudanese, you know, East African um, young refugees, um, pretty much mostly young men, young boys, really, they leave Africa when they're boys. Um, and they, you know, go through such incredible danger and trauma to make it to Europe, um, where they believe their lives will be better, or that they will have better economic opportunity, or be able to support their families better. Um, quite often I feel that they probably you know um maybe they arrive and they're actually quite 
disillusioned by some of the conditions they face, um, the quality of life they face, the fact that they might have traded support and family and community for maybe a little bit more economic prosperity, but potentially quite a lonely life or, you know, not a socially very well adjusted life. And it's a very complex issue. And one of the things we discuss a lot um, in the work that I do with other, you know, organizations and advocates is that does there need to be a, diff, a, a more realistic narrative given of what's waiting for them the other side? Um, should these journeys be a bit more disencouraged because they are so dangerous? Do young people know what they're getting themselves into when they leave? But also, um, is it even accurate? Like, is there truly more for them um, in, in Europe? And that is genuinely for me an open question. I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, and I've never been to Ethiopia, so it's a hard thing for me to tangibly answer. But do you feel, what is your thoughts on that firstly? And do you feel that maybe with projects like yours, you are trying to challenge that narrative? You are trying to maybe give younger generations more reasons to stay um, in their native country. And, you know, again, you say in your materials that, you know, Africa can feed itself. And so is that again, what you mean by that? Is it to avoid even some of this level of migration? Actually, this question is, uh, for me, is an apt and uh, provocative one. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, Ethiopian risk their life to, to go to rich countries. Myself, uh, I have been offered several times the opportunity to study in Germany, for example. But it would be irrelevant for me to learn in, in European climate. So I choose uh, to stay in Africa and become myself a success model as an entrepreneur for other young people to follow me. Uh, the school gardens have a long-term vision uh, when uh, a child has enough food to, to go healthy and uh, remember the happy mother uh, laughing in the garden. Uh, I saw that uh, great uh, happiness in that, within that uh, 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 smiley face in that, uh, in that mother. So when this child goes away, he will study, he will become maybe uh, someone important, mm -hmm. but he's who will stay uh, with the native uh, family or the native land. So uh, my offer uh, for Ethiopian youth, learn with me how to grow food, uh, create a bountiful environment around you. So for me, uh, it is very, very important that uh, People, uh, African, mostly uh, my Af my fellow Africans who are living in Europe, they should think twice that Africa is the land of opportunity. It's always about the perception gap between the um, uh, the risks that they 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 took uh, to go to the richer countries, and of course, the uh, the success that they 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 will get here in in Africa. So for me, it needs compassion, it needs uh, ability, of course, passion uh, to bring about the change. I'm a Pan-Africanist, by the way, Mona, mm -hmm. and uh, I truly believe in the potential of Africa. You know, uh, there is this study from the World Bank. It says uh, uh, by 2050, Africa becomes uh, one trillion food market. So are we ready to take all these opportunities? So there is a lot to learn. Uh, there is a lot to 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 share with with our within African continent, rather than running to Europe and uh, um, 
yeah, and just finally end up in, in, in insanity. And finally, you will uh, you will end up just uh, in in complete life. So for me, it is very important to see Africa as a good opportunity for life. That's what I want to convey the message for the young people in Europe that they should see Africa as an opportunity rather than a dark continent or a hopeless continent. And of course, this time around. Africa is rising indeed, and uh, we need people uh, to work hand in hand uh, to bring such a great uh, continent. And I believe uh, Africa become uh, and will be the growth pole of uh, the future. Thank you. And I know that question really is, it's very emotional even, you know, discussing it because it really does bring so much pain, I imagine, on so many families and um, I certainly see the pain that the young people go through when they when they arrive, and it's a very very sad reality, um, unfortunately. So, we ask this of every project we speak with, every person we speak to on this podcast. Um, you know, with social change, I guess there is um, the idea is to move to a place where. Um, you know, the world has changed or perhaps where our work in some senses is no longer needed. I mean, that might not be the case for everybody, but we do ask everybody um, as a sort of end note, um, when, if ever, do you think your work will no longer be needed? Uh, I think uh, there is a lot of work to do. And uh, in my view, uh, when all children uh, will go to bed or sleep well fed, uh, then the mission uh, incomplete. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I honestly do not believe uh, it will uh, it will happen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. But I am happy to be part of this movement, and I want uh, history to remember me, uh, who started the process. Uh, so uh, the country like uh, Ethiopia. It's really a lot of work, a lot of burden, because like I said, uh, food is a great issue. Food is a big issue here. Uh, and food security is a challenge uh, for, for, for the country like Ethiopia. So uh, what I want to uh, say here is that uh, uh, I really want to see a happy children and well-fed and uh, they uh, they went to school happy even in the school compound uh, uh, they will be very very productive you know i uh, this is what i uh, want to say it will take a lot of time a lot of energy and passion uh, to reach the vision right Fazari, what did you think of that like quite a lot of different perspectives on the same issue again as usual yeah I mean um, like you said different perspectives and actually this episode forced me to reflect on my own preconceptions and notions um, traditionally when I hear the word philanthropy I tend to go to a more negative place in my mind where I have the images of like planes dropping food parcels and um, that more detached um, notion of relating to to social change issues um and i think of more passive language maybe that's steeped in like ideas of misfortune and attaching fate and fortune to um 
to situations rather than assessing structures and systems um, and looking at symptoms rather than looking at causes. So it was actually really refreshing to hear um, people who were taking accountability and having self-awareness and um, flipping that on its head and actually looking at the causes of things and dismantling the structures of things um, in their addressing of the symptoms. Uh, And especially when that was coming from a foundation, which again, traditionally when I hear foundation, I think of maybe Bill Gates investing in, (laughs) in, um, in uh, solutions for malaria or whatever, rather than, yeah, these institutions that are doing that in a, a very different way. So for me, I think I found it quite refreshing to hear this different appro- approach and this sort of sort of shift in power dynamics. Yeah, I felt, um, you know, Anne really kind of, you know, hit the nail on the head in terms of sort of talking about these more Victorian ideas of charity and all oh, these poor people over there. And we give them a little bit of money or food or whatever, but we never quite, you know, they never quite become equal. You know, there's always this idea that some have more than others and that's fine. It's nice if they can distribute it a little bit, but you shouldn't try and change that fundamentally. And I guess that's kind of what we are trying to challenge and sort of, I think one of the, my, you know, um, or, you know, when, when people hear that, you know, you work in charity, like a lot of people think, oh, how lovely. And that's really nice. And they think it's all really good. And I think for me, my issue with the charity sector has always been, we shouldn't need it. You know, we should have a public sector that provides everything that people need mm. and people should see it as their right and their entitlement as opposed to like, oh, lucky me if someone kind of throws me some scraps, mm. you know, and I think therefore people can remain incredibly sort of disempowered but I guess there are more and more organizations and foundations that are trying to sort of acknowledge that and say fine like as long as we are in this capitalist system we still need money to do things and some of us have more of it than others but how do we redistribute it and how do we also with that maybe try and redistribute the power right over decision making and how money is spent and so on um and I guess Iskender very much spoke to that this idea of not wanting to be seen as dependent whether that's on a very individual level, organization to organization, or even, I guess, in his case, in a sort of global level in terms of maybe Africa being dependent mm. on the West, for example, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's, again, it, it exists at so many levels. And we know that with the Lush Spring Prize, they were also very mindful of how do we change the old fashioned way of giving mm-hmm. um, and selecting um, and what types of projects do we give two I guess yeah exactly I completely agree that certain things are just fundamental rights or should just be fundamental rights of being human um and I think that the the problem as well as disempowering people is it just removes the history of why things are the way they are and especially when you think of Africa and its relation to the western world um you can't remove that history from why people are living in dire situations. Um, and I guess that what is what I was speaking to as well with the idea of fate and this is just the way things are. Um, but I really liked also what Anne said around, I think she framed it as unlocking change rather than creating change, because I think we can both agree as well that um, often there are many solutions that already exist at the grassroots and someone like Iskender is already working on solutions because he knows his community and they have natural born solutions. Maybe they need money to um, invest in those solutions. But I think often 
traditional funding structures can always operate in a space of creating something new or be project-based or all of these things. And Anne's actual notion of actually we're recognising that this expertise, this knowledge, this experimentation already exists and we're just given the resources that are needed to further that is really powerful versus, okay, pitch to me this idea that you're going to do to do this. And I think even in our personal work, we always find it much more useful when we're able to work with funders that say, okay, we recognize you're doing something, here's some money to support it rather than create this project for me that ticks a box that I can then report on, you know, because you find yourself creating things for the sake of trying to access that money rather than continuing to address a need. And I guess, you know, and when we speak about this a lot, right, like money in and of itself, um, you know, is kind of the root of, of, of the evil, right, in a way. So like, we're, you know, we're living in this capitalist system where money is needed to do anything. And while it is needed, is there really like how ethical can you ever really get when trying to source it? Um, and therefore, everybody's constantly making little compromises or decisions on a micro mm. level, right? And I know that Ruth in our capitalism episode spoke about that, you know, the kind of integrity versus impact scale. Like if you die hard stick with your integrity, maybe you never make any impact. Maybe you then try and comp- like at least maneuver that a little bit so that you can have a bigger impact than she decided for herself that maybe Lush was a good compromise for her. And speaks about it not being these binary terms of good and evil like it always just being something's purely good and purely evil we're always on a scale and I think with something like social enterprise you know that Iskender speaks of you know I it's been coined as quite a positive thing and something which I guess gives people supposedly agency but then you can also wonder like how free and autonomous are you ever if you're then dependent on the free market because then suddenly a profit-making mentality has to come in to a social cause. And is it almost maybe better that somebody who is a donor just gives you loads of money, you don't have to be dependent on the the whims of the free market and you just have your money and you do what you might need to do. Now you are a bit dependent on a donor, but otherwise are you dependent on, I don't know, your customers? Yeah, because ultimately... As, yeah, as well as that dependency, I guess there's always going to have to be some kind of prioritization, right? And are we prioritizing the social cause or are we prioritizing the profit making? And I guess, yeah, that's always a balance that has to be struck. Um, I think related to that, Anne speaks about resilience um, versus sustainability, because I think we posed the question to both of them actually about how sustainable um, is it is it an aim to be sustainable as um, sort of a charitable organisation and do fa- funders look for sustainability within what they fund? And I think Anne raised a good point that rather than looking at sustainability, we should look at resilience because resilience is not just financial and it goes beyond um, just the idea of people being profitable or all of these things. And it actually looks at changing what the idea of development means and it's more about adaptation being adaptable being diverse being flexible and again I mean forgive me because I'm definitely not (laughs) as rooted in nature terms as you but I think these are some of the things that things like permaculture (laughs) encourages um, because they're reflected in nature like diversity flexibility adaptation and all of these things um I never thought I'd be described as rooted in nature terms. <laughs> Somebody's turning in their grave somewhere. Um, so I guess, um, again, for everybody listening, because it gets so epic and we get into these very big themes and you might be thinking, well, so what do you want me to do? How do you want me to spend my not my money or not spend my money or whatever? I think there are some, again, 
tangible things you could do. So for example, we spoke about the massive spectrum of charitable organizations. Now, charities um, can all be found publicly, or they certainly should, if they're not dodgy, be able to be found on the Charities Commission. You can see what charities earn. You can see what money they turned over. They should all be publishing what they spend their money on. So is loads of it going on massive rent on an office space, or is a lot of it going on literal food parcels for homeless people you can check that out even slightly more modern companies like social enterprises that may not be charities legally might be um, company um, limited by guarantees or CICs they can be found on companies house and the same way they should be publishing openly how they spend their money and so you can go and check and be like right this is supposedly a charity but they turned over like 10 million last year maybe I'll donate to a much much smaller organization we speak a lot about thinking globally but acting locally and again maybe the closer to you, physically closer to you an organization is, not even in a romanticized way, but in a very practical way, it just means you get to see the work they do. So you can literally see like, is there an art club happening in my local community center? Or did I just give money to something and I don't really know what happened? Mm. So I think you can certainly on an individual level do these checks. Yeah, and I think acting locally helps... um transform from the more traditional charity mindset that we spoke about in the learn to more of a mindset which is steeped in solidarity and I know that's introducing a slightly new word or new concept but essentially it's shifting from that separation isn't it where it's like othering the person that um, is being quote-unquote helped and looking at it more as actually we're all in this together and I want to become part of the change with you, um, in alignment with you, on equal terms with you, I'm going to work towards this change. So like Mona says, if you look at things that are more local to you, it's much easier to then stand beside the people that you're offering a service to or offering your time to or offering your money to um, because you're rooted more in that issue and space. Similarly, with, um, you know, with charitable foundations, you know, you should again be able to trace like where they get their money that they're distributing. And, you know, so sometimes you might find that, you know, if money's coming from Shell, for example, but then it's being given to supposedly climate justice organizations, you can again trace that and say, okay, like, what is the agenda or the intention behind giving this money? Is it just actually more for somebody's own PR? Is it for them to look good? Like, because we're getting into a, a space these days where a lot of corporations are putting money into supposedly good causes. You know, we saw kind of Amazon take the stage at COP, um, but are literally every day mass producing and selling like products that we don't need you know loads of plastic tat or whatever so actually holistically are they acting on the principles that they apparently are funding because for a massive company like amazon giving even a million to charity is nothing yeah. but it will do so much in kind of cleaning Positive up PR. their reputation so again be critical like trace the lines like look into organizations don't just see a massive you know, um, banner or a kind of placard with a big charity that can afford adverts. Exactly. Yeah. Often the people you're hearing <laughs> yeah. from, if you're seeing them or they're knocking on your door, etc., they probably have the resources to do so, which probably means they're on the bigger side. Exactly. Most grassroots organizations don't have capacity to have <laughs> or the funds to have um, adverts on TV, for example. Mm. So I think as always, we're sort of saying, you know, 
there are multiple levels to it. Do your research, ask around you, check what's going on around you, um, really try and connect more with grassroots um, organizations and movements. Again, we would encourage you to check out all the um, awardees and um, nominees in the Lush Spring Prize because there was a very particular ethos in awarding very grassroots organizations who are working in a more sort of, again, sustainable and, and you know, and systemic way. Um, so definitely check those out. And yeah, like when you look at organizations, look at who funds them, scroll to the bottom of their website, what partner logos, you know, what sponsors. And I think that often can give you quite a lot of information, basically. Yeah, and coupled with that, there is, of course, Ethical Consumer, which is one of the partners of the Lush Bing Prize. That platform is a great resource for finding out about the ethics of companies so maybe you do go onto a charity's website and see that they're supported by shell bp etc etc and then you can actually use ethical consumer magazine to see the ethics of these companies um because it's not always obvious the examples i used are maybe more obvious but it's not always obvious how ethical companies are and also in your personal life it can help you transition to more ethical um companies and that's in every element of life from the clothes you wear the food you eat the banks you bank with banks are a massive place where money is stored and invested in different causes so um yeah ethical consumer magazine will also be linked in the description and is a great place to go to look deeper into the ethics of organizations Yes, everyone. So lots of food for thought there. And um, we will share those resources with you. Um, as always, if there are topics that we've discussed today that you'd like to dig into more deeply, um, we have two previous seasons which do explore some of these bigger subjects in more depth. We have episodes on literally what is capitalism? What are what is ethical consumption? What are workers rights if you're checking out companies? Um, etc etc so you can check out all of those we are at untelevised underscore tv on all social media or you can go to untelevised.co.uk for our website which has all the resources we just mentioned um, massively helps us if you rate review subscribe to this podcast because we are a grassroots entity fighting all the massive corporations <laughs> um, and um, yeah as always we'd love to hear from you um, do these episodes make you think differently do they make you have do they do you have follow-up questions are there topics you think we still should be exploring have you come across really progressive enlightened funders that we should know about um share it with us we always want to hear from you indeed and as you're listening i'm sure you're getting ready for the holiday season so are we <laughs> and i'm sure you can hear the slight tiredness in our voices so we're going to take a little bit of a break over the christmas period but we'll be back the first week of january with an exciting episode on something called recuperation and i'll leave you in suspense as to what that is until next time we need to go figure it out <laughs> ourselves <laughs> okay take care everyone bye. have a lovely break bye Call me a dreamer, idealistic believer With my head in a cloud, I don't want to come down from my feet Or plant it on, start the ground For my ground My ground is a cloud